ahead and get started then. I'd like to welcome everyone to the eighth of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. These calls are held every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time and they're free and open to the public. My name is Scott Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia and I'm serving as the host for these discussions. The link to this discussion is the same every weekday and please help us spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and for topics to cover. And also please feel free to suggest yourself as a guest. You can also hear these COVID calls recorded as podcasts. Just go to soundcloud.com and search for the Slow Disaster Podcast. You can stream it or you can download it. I'll also make the link available via my Twitter feed at US of Disaster. Tomorrow, we're going to discuss the COVID-19 situation in Italy with two guests, Giacomo Paranello, Assistant Professor of Environmental History at the Paris Institute of Political Studies, Science Po, and Paolo Cavieri of the Disaster Research Center in the University of Delaware. Really excited to uh, speak with them tomorrow, bring us up to date on what's happening in Italy. As of today, there are globally 458,927 confirmed cases, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center, up from 407,485 400, cases yesterday. 62,086 of those cases are in the United States, up from 49,768 reported cases this time yesterday. There are now a total of 869 deaths reported in the United States from COVID-19, up from 600 reported this time yesterday. One of the things that's been on my mind today is about how we can possibly capture everything we need to know about this disaster. And as we discussed yesterday with the guest Andy Revkin, newsrooms are maxed out, and that's just keeping up with the day-to-day. -day. The disaster research community is maxed out too. There are 57 states and territories in every major city across America fully activated in emergency management centers, plus every hospital, plus the disaster planners for every major and probably even smaller companies. We have an enormous amount of information, much of it excruciatingly valuable, being generated every single day right now as this slow disaster unfolds. Usually, when we talk about this, we, we call it a process of learning from disaster, but how can we learn about it in the midst of this disaster, particularly this one that is maxing out the disaster response and research community simultaneously? This is a discussion that I actually um, first engaged with today's guest, Adam Rogers. He and I first met and had a conversation about how researchers and how government can learn from disaster. And I hope we'll get a chance to talk about that today. So let me introduce him. Today's guest is Adam Rogers. Adam writes about science for Wired Magazine. And before coming to Wired, he was a Knight Science Journalism Fellow at MIT and a reporter for Newsweek. He's the author of the New York Times science bestseller, Proof, The Science of Booze. And he had a new story up a couple of days ago uh, an old source for potential, this is the title of it, an old source for potential new COVID-19 drugs, blood serum. It's a great article and I encourage you to give it a read. So we're gonna talk about COVID-19 tests, vaccines, Silicon Valley, the tech economy, and much more in the age of COVID-19. Hi Adam, thanks for making time today. 
Thank you for having me come do it. I'm glad to get to. And I want to encourage everyone to ask questions in the chat, and we'll get to those questions uh, throughout the throughout the hour that we're together here. So I guess I want to just start out, um, if you don't mind, um, what can you tell us about the situation there in the Bay Area? Um, any new information, anything you can share with us, the perspective out there? Um, well, you can probably see from the background that I'm you know, my, my little office hidey hole uh, and not in the bustling Wired newsroom. Uh, we've been, Wired has been work from home for 7,000 years. No, it can't be 7,000 years. Feels like uh, it. A time dilates, doesn't it, um, in strange ways. For a few weeks, we, we actually uh, left the office um, earlier than most places, in part because our science desk uh, myself and, and others on the desk who were also involved in some of that internal decision-making said it's time to go home because um, mm. it was becoming increasingly clear that this was serious. Uh, so the streets are very empty um, and uh, it's very quiet when we walk around. Um, uh, we're all learning like everyone else is what it's like to interact with people on screens. Um, Absolutely. much less than face-to-face -face and how to sort of manage that. Um, I, I haven't seen any of the kind of uh, elite panic worries that think people think are going on in stores. There is a little bit of that, the weird, you know, personal uh, hygiene items missing from shelves in Costco's and Safeways. But like, there's still, I was talking to a bunch of friends who were like, what about bread? And I said, Do you guys not have bread? There's, there's bread on the store shelves here in the Bay Area. Um, you know, there's none of that kind of, it's not that flavor of apocalypse. It's some other very quiet flavor um, where there are like more animals in the streets. Uh, the, the crows seem more brazen than they, than they usually do because there are fewer cars. Um, and I think also, uh, you know, there may be a sense, Californians always have a little bit of exceptionalism about them. And, and I think there may be some of that as well in the hope that, that maybe we actually didn't, start social distancing early enough to not see the same the same kind of curve, although the expectation is it will still be a bad curve at our hospitals that, for example, New York has experienced or Washington has. Maybe the state government here will be able to help some small businesses and people who don't have access to resources in the same way that perhaps the federal bills that are, I think, just got agreed upon either last night or this morning um, might not encompass, but maybe more will. At the same time, you know, you mentioned that I, I wrote a booze book a few years ago, and 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 that did um, put me in some, you know, personal and professional connections with a lot of people in that field. And so, seeing a lot of the local bars um, in East Bay where I live, um, not only closed but boarded up, um, places that I wrote about at the time, uh, I I I take it very very personally, just as places that were emotionally meaningful to me. And to see these these folks who are small business owners doing kind of amazing creative things as they are in every field. This just happens to be the one that I know a little bit about. Right. Um, to see them not be able to do that and to worry about their livelihoods is, um, it has, has, I've, I have found that as, as everyone does, very difficult. That's a context that's, I think, really important for people who live in big cities, which is a lot of Americans, the majority of Americans, um, that, you know, social distancing in terms of staying connected with work colleagues or school or whatever, I mean, that's playing out the way it, way it will. Seem, people seem to be able to cope. But, you know, in places, particularly where people live in small apartments, um, you know, the bar, the corner restaurant, 
the corner bodega, these are not just places where you get supplies. These are places where you go and see, uh, maybe they're not even friends, they're acquaintances or somebody you just know, you know, that sort of uh, loose social network that people who live in cities are used to is not something we have as much access to or any access to right now in most places. I wonder what the psychological impact of that is right now for people. We, we assumed cultural sociologists, anthropologists assumed that the, that the significance of the third place was profound when people had access to them, the, the, the coffee house and the bar, um, potentially a, a, the, the theater, movie theater, live shows, a museum. But the, that third place of a place you can go and stay and sort of be, you know, be resident for a while, um, bar and the coffee house being the most famous examples of that. To not have access to those, I mean, my sort of my puttering uh, routine, the one the like go think about a thing to write has has for my entire career involved walking to a place to get a cup of coffee and then walking back to my desk. And I find myself, and now unconnected from that, I find myself um, weirdly unmoored. And I and I mm-hmm. assume that every every person being cut off from those routines now becomes just as unmoored. Um, in a in these small but very significant ways. Like, well, now I don't know how to think about how to write a story. And my whole job, my whole most of the way I'm supposed to spend the day is to figure out how to write a story. And now I'm cut off from the way to do that. And I assume that must be true for you know, all of us. Yeah, I think it is. So I, you, you mentioned writing a story and you've still been, even though your, your uh, walk and your daily routine has been disrupted, I presume you walk to the coffee maker and back now, but exactly you're still right. cranking out great journalism right now. And I wanted to ask you about this, um, this story that just posted a couple of, of days ago the um, title of it, Blood from COVID-19 Survivors May Point the Way to a Cure. And you talk about um, serological testing. Can you take us inside to uh, this, this story? What's, what's, this seems vaguely like good news, I think, uh, yeah, the I, way I read it. Take us inside of it. Um, I, I read it that way as well. There's, there's still, as there's science, there's a lot to still kind of figure out. But uh, so I, I, I want to do kind of a stepwise thing because I tried to do it in the story too. The, the, the tests for whether a person is infected with COVID-19 now have rightly been a, um, a, a controversy because they were in such short supply. They have been in such short supply. They continue to be in short supply now probably because of the resources to make those tests rather than the kits themselves. That's a, that is an ongoing, unfolding story that I remain convinced. There are a couple of open questions on that we can talk about. Um, and uh, somebody, some reporter is going to answer those questions and win a, a Pulitzer Prize. Um, but uh, that is one kind of test. It's a test that they put a, a nasopharyngeal swab. They stick a long Q-tip up your nose or in your throat. They take out some snot, and then they look for the RNA of the specific pieces of the genetic material, the RNA that's in the virus. It's a very good way of telling if you are like currently infected, if you have, if you are showing symptoms or are about to show symptoms. Um, it's not the only way to test for a disease, and in fact, it's um, it's really bad if you want to know if someone has been infected, someone was infected but recovered, because then they, they don't have virus anymore, essentially. You know, it's a little more complicated than that, but it's basically true. If you want to know that, you want to do what's called a serological test, a blood test. And what you're testing for in the blood is not the virus, but for uh, antibodies to the virus, for the mm-hmm. things, for evidence of, of, of the body's response, the immune system's response to the virus, the things that we make to fight against a pathogen like a virus. Um, those or specific ones of those, there's a lot of different kinds, stay in us 
even after we've defeated a virus. So that's why uh, mm -hmm. once you've had chickenpox, you're immune to chickenpox. Uh, and it's why uh, vaccines work, um, is that we're you're sort of giving somebody that active immunity so that now their body knows how to do that, knows how to wage that fight for next time, even though they never had the first time. Um, and it's why we don't get uh, immune to the common cold or to a flu, uh, because those recur and they mutate and they change. So there's never the same one and they kind of dance around in between our immune system. Okay, so it would be great to have a serological test because then you could tell if someone had been infected, certainly baseline, you could learn about the immunology of the disease and you could do a, a really important and interesting kind of surveillance of the disease. You could start to build out the denominator for how many people got sick, how many people have been sick, and, and learn more about how dangerous the disease really is and find out um, maybe the, the case fatality rate or the infection fatality rate, the number, the percentage of people it kills isn't 1% or like nearly 10% as it has been in Italy and some other places, but it's also maybe not, you know, what the seasonal flu is, for example, which is much mm -hmm. lower. Um, so that would be great. You could also, and now we sort of get to the place where the story is, you could also do a couple of really cool things. One is, if you found out that people were, had been infected and were now immune, and increasingly it does seem like this is a slow, uh, a, a, the, the virus mutates so slowly that you do have immunity for some amount of time. So those people could stop being physically distant. They could, stop, they could, they could leave their houses. You, they wouldn't have to shelter in place anymore. Right. It would be great for everybody, all, for all of us would be nice. But also it would mean that like, well, if you were in a business, you could open your business again. Um, and if you're a healthcare worker, then you don't have to worry as much you're not going to get infected and you're not going to infect other people because um, healthcare workers are tremendously vulnerable to this virus as, as they have with many, many other outbreaks. Right. So that would be great. And then you can start to do something that's pretty cool. So for more than 100 years, even before uh, vaccines were widely used and before antibiotics existed, one of the ways that um, physicians, healthcare workers would treat people with infections would be to give them an ingredient, some ingredients, of the blood of people who had been infected with that disease and had recovered. Because even smallpox didn't kill everybody. Measles doesn't kill everybody. Right. And you could, you could take that blood, and at the time, you would let the red blood cells um, congeal. You know, uh, the, you'd take that component of the blood out, and what you'd have left would be called serum. It's a little more purified and, and, and uh, scientificized a process now, so now it's called plasma. But you'd take the stuff that essentially contained all of those antibodies, the library of all of the responses that that person had ever had to the entire microbiome that they'd walked through in their entire life. Mm. And then just once you match the blood types, give it to the person who'd been sick. And that would help, especially if they were in early symptoms, giving them convalescent serum or convalescent plasma mm. could potentially existed somewhere between like a drug and a vaccine where mm. if they were just starting to show symptoms, they would then recover. In many cases, it wasn't perfect, but they would get better. And then they were immune also. It was as if they recovered from the disease themselves. Um, and so now, and, and, and it's been used um, not just for you know, measles in the 1930s, but it, it was used to varying degrees against SARS and MERS and Ebola. And um, WHO, World Health Organization, even promulgated a, uh, um, a protocol for using a convalescent mm -hmm. plasma during the last Ebola outbreak. Um, and it didn't get used as much. And when it did get used, it was used under um, uh, officially or unofficially compassionate use. They would just try it without sort of getting the data. Um, and then it kind of got supplanted with Ebola by, by a, a, a treatment called ZMAP, 
um, which is sort of an, the next, even the next immunological iterative step of this, which is if you can learn enough about the immunology of a disease, then you can create what are called monoclonal antibodies, which is instead of that polyclonal mix that you find in plasma, you can, um, through various kinds of testing, figure out the exact right antibody or antibodies that go directly to the specific disease you're trying to fight or to, in fact, cancer or autoimmune disorders, a bunch of other things that that now exists for, go to a bioreactor, inject the genes to make that stuff into, uh, into yeast usually, have it make it, purify that out and give that as the drug vaccine intermediary. And then that becomes another treatment. And the reason that, that I, it, this is the first story that I've worked on in some weeks that made me feel kind of okay, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, is that th these are, um, unlike, for example, chloroquine or hydroxychloroquine, which get, has gotten a lot of um, attention lately. Like nobody knows what mode of action that would have if it has any mode of action on, um, uh, on COVID-19. It only, only works in vitro and in a study that we can talk about if you want, that's sort of dicey. Um, yeah, yeah, I think we'll get to it, yeah. But, but people understand how monoclonal antibodies work. People understand convalescent plasma. And, and because it's a human product, as long as you can deal with giving a blood product and making sure that the person who's a donor isn't HIV positive or have other some blood-borne disease, that's something that people know how it works. And it's relatively safe, at least, and if it has an impact on the disease, as, as it does in other infections, in other viral diseases, then um, that's, a, that's another one of those things that helps, uh, helps in hospitals. Potentially you can give it to healthcare workers as a kind of temporary immunity while they're working with other people. Um, and it, uh, you know, it's exactly what, at the beginning of all this, one of the researchers I talked to was talking about that flattening the curve thing. Mm -hmm. And was saying that the reason you do that is so that you can give science time right. to begin to figure this out. And this is one of those things like, okay, the, if it's going to be a year and a half to a vaccine. What happens between then? This is one of those things that could happen between then. And so now New York uh, is mounting up clinical trials of this. There's an investigational new drug license for it. Um, they'll be able to give it for compassionate use. As soon as there are enough recovered, people who've recovered for about two weeks, they'll be able to get the blood from them, spin it down and give it to people. And that might help. Was be great. Convalescent plasma, uh, historically being developed at the same time that early vaccines are being developed? I mean, are the, are the, the sort of medical history of those the same, or is it a much older technique somehow? Um, it, it, the earliest recorded uses are like late 1800s. Okay. Uh, and then th th there's a, a, famous, um, a famous account in public health journal, in a public health journal. Uh, I, maybe I'll find the link when we do some questions and I can put it sure, in the chat. Sure. Um, to, the, to the article uh, of a person talking about its use, particularly in measles in adolescence in the 1930s. Um, and, and, you know, nobody, the public health community has never forgotten about it. Um, it just get, get vaccines are better. Mm -hmm. you know, antivirals nominally are better, although that's, there's been some, not as much luck with antivirals. And certainly um, monoclonal antibodies do owe a certain debt to the idea and they, they're better as well. If you can find them, find the manufacturing process. That has a manufacturing um, component uh, and purification component that's difficult. But, but this, is a, this is one of those old school solutions that when you don't have anything else, you return, you return to it. Um, and I'm very, I'm very psyched to see what the, what the trials show to see if it, if it helps people. And this story has been moving so quickly that, that now instead of just talking about testing to confirm a diagnosis of COVID-19, um, we're talking in many cases about skipping that now and people being instructed basically to act as if you have it, you know, going back to what you're talking about with this convalescent plasma, then that, that would trigger, I mean, simply a patient saying, I think I have the, or a physician saying, it looks like you have the, 
you're presenting in, with COVID-19 symptoms, that's enough for us. And then the convalescent plasma would be used in that, in that situation? That's a good question. I, I, I'm not actually sure what the, <clears throat> what the indication would be for using convalescent plasma and where, like at which point when you're presenting, right. you want to use it. The, the, um, it's interesting because the, the kind of three use cases that the researchers have laid out for this so far that they want to study and also maybe just do because they'll be useful are people with early symptoms, um, post-exposure prophylaxis, which is which you would give it to healthcare workers first line probably, and then what somebody described as hail marrying somebody who's really sick, just like that brings really we got it, we don't have anything else. All those things, it's, but all those things require the, the donors. You have to have a relationship with the blood bank. You have to have people who donate enough blood. You have to do the work with it. And then also you, you, you kind of, you can't use the blood test to test if somebody's got it in early symptoms. I just saw some numbers on this because for the first week or so, the, the immunological, the serological tests don't capture that they're sick as, anywhere near as well as the, the RNA the um, nasal pharyngeal test does. So you have to use the old kind of test and decide if they're sick. Um, so I don't know if they'll, the, the testing that they're doing is limited, but it may well be that if they're going to do this, they're going to administer convalescent plasma, they'll want to test and, and confirm um, to make sure, because otherwise you're using a resource that you don't, that's not an infinite um, resource. Um, but the, uh, the real bummer about that switch from, you know, mitigation to just assuming that everybody who presents right. at an ER with a fever and coughing has it and proceeding as if is that you lose a tremendous amount of surveillance data. Um, you lose data for clinical trials. You lose data for counting that, that denominator that I was just talking about. You, you just, you, you lose being able to figure out um, how, how the disease is moving through communities. Um, and you, uh, and then you lose the opportunity to go to do the sort of case surveillance and, finding contacts and matching mm -hmm. those contacts that you want because the, the, in the places where the, the curve really has been bent, if you look at the financial times curves and they've got the blue curves, you know, yeah, the ones yeah. that are like, yeah, that's how you want to be Singapore and Hong Kong. Right. Even though some of those places seem to be losing that again, you know, it goes up and down. One of the things they've been able to do is like institute central quarantine and massive testing. Germany has done this too, to be able to track contacts and get those people as well out of the, um, you know, out of the, out of, out of gen pop. Um, right. And, uh, and if you stop testing completely, if you just give up on tests, um, then you don't get to do that. So I want to capture two ends of this story on the timeline. So let's go back a little bit then to this um, missed moment. And when the book is written, the books are written. Uh, the month of January of 2020 is going to be uh, quite a month for talking about the history of public health in the United States and the CDC. Can you reconstruct as best you know what what happened there? I was talking with Rob Meyer a little bit like last week or as you say uh, 20 years ago about this uh, and I'd like to hear you know your take on it. Yeah of course Rob and Alexis Magical did that wonderful story for the Atlantic about this. Uh, Megan Multaney and I did our story about it. Mm -hmm. um, huge teams at the Post and the Journal and the Times have done their takes. Uh, the AP had a team do it. All of us have been mounting these like multiple person efforts to try. Yeah. To really and as a historian, I'm eager to have each of these teams write a book because we're going to need those many different perspectives on it, frankly. But so I would, I, let's hear yours. I think that's right. And I, and I saw so there. So what did, what did we get to? What we got to, and I, I should say, no, no team has answered all the questions. Mm. Nobody's got it. 
Um, it's exciting as a journalist. It's weird. I know that's perverse, but it's exciting. Um, so the, 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 the Chinese said that they had this problem. And it was a problem that the public health community has expected for, you know, since SARS and MERS. People know like, okay, respiratory coronavirus with, respiratory virus with pneumonia, probably coronavirus coming out of the, the live animal markets of China. That's like the scenario everybody gamed out. So even though there's been a loss in our preparation and people who understand how to deal with that in the, at the federal level in this country, that's still something that they understood. So that happened. And, and, and kind of when it did, once, that, once it got to January, um, so the World Health Organization had a, a, um, got a test developed for it. Once the genome, and I guess this happened January 10th, they posted the genome um, from, from Wuhan. And almost immediately, people started making tests. The World Health Organization had a German uh, lab make a test that they gave out eventually to 120 different countries. And about half a dozen other tests started to come online too. China had a couple, South Korea had a mm -hmm. test. Singapore had its own test. A lot of the, the Asian countries first. Their infrastructures for dealing with a, a, a coronavirus um, had been more extensively built out from the last time and it had sustained because they knew that they were the first places it would come to, those countries. Um, and at kind of about the same time, the Department of Health and Human Services here instructed the CDC to make a test that, we, that the United States would use. And um, First week so of January, we're into just like middle of January, right? Okay, okay, yeah. And they did. Um, the CDC made a test, and it used two RNA primers, which is two two pieces of the the actual coronavirus of what came to be called SARS-CoV-2, and also a piece that wasn't that that you would check because they really worry about false positives. Especially in the U.S., our regulatory environment is particularly concerned about tests that show false positives for very good scientific reasons. But that's the regulatory environment here is particularly concerned about. And when the tests started to get distributed to state labs, which were the places that would they assumed would do it, because they didn't. Here's the speculative part. It's unclear how bad did they think it was going to get. Because it doesn't seem like by their response they thought it was going to get really bad. They thought it. They, it seems like they thought it was going to look like MERS. Here or SARS mm. here, um, and they kind of remembered that like Ebola, which everybody panicked about, had like three people, right? Like it didn't get here at all. So they thought maybe it wouldn't be that. Maybe, be maybe because they thought it wasn't as infectious, or they thought that the the shutdown of Wuhan entirely had basically stopped the spread, or some combination of those, or something else. We don't. Know. And so here's and so here's a question: Was it yeah. they thought that because politically they were told to think that because right. politically the closing down of the U.S. borders to countries mm -hmm. like China. Right. Um, was the solution. Mm -hmm. And the numbers that showed otherwise belied that. And so they were, they, they were sort of not, not supposed to think that. That's a question. I don't know if that happened. Yeah. I don't know that anybody knows if that happened yet. Yeah. And that, that China had locked down Wuhan and, and Hebei. And, and uh, more increasingly, you know, papers are coming out. I even saw two today that were saying, that like, yeah, that lockdown there really helped. And that's that thing they're saying, like, China bought everybody time, depending on how they used it. It seems like they really did. Um, now it's become a little bit less clear about how trustworthy the international community is finding China's numbers now, but people think then that seemed to work. So, but when those tests, when the American tests started to go out to American labs, they didn't work. The, the, the false positive part of the test didn't work. And they started getting those reports back. And when that happened, things slowed down. 
And I don't think anybody has figured out why that happened yet, except that there was a, a determination uh, in the, on the part of the um, American government, the federal government, to keep working on our test and not just go to the WHO and say, we need a lot of your tests right now. They just didn't do that. WHO offered, or there, were, there were conversations about it, but the, nobody knows how that determination was made. Nobody, somebody knows, no journalist knows how that determination was made, nor do they know why that determination was made. Um, and that's going to be, that's the thing that people are going to want, that I want to find, everybody wants to find that out. Um, so while that was going on, the state public health departments and even local places and universities were all saying, well, let us make our own tests. We're going to make a test. This is, now that we have the genetic information, we can do that. And they, and, and they weren't allowed to. There, something in the bureaucracy prevented them from doing that. They didn't get approval. The, the, the FDA slow walked the approval. Is that normal? We saw something similar with Ebola and with MERS that uh, other, you know, qualified labs that wanted to help were told to stand back? You know, I don't know what happened with those other um, diseases, but there wasn't the same urgency because people didn't think they were seeing the same number of cases. Right. Um, there weren't, certainly with Ebola, nobody was presenting at local emergency rooms right. with those kind of symptoms. Right. And there was this other weird thing going on too, um, where retros retroactively by February, um, emergency room doctors, infectious disease physicians were starting to say things like, geez, you know, come to think of it, early in January, we had this huge spike of people with flu-like symptoms who didn't test positive for the flu. We didn't know what it was. So it started, so like frontline public health workers, healthcare workers started to say, I think we already have yeah, it. We've seen that, yeah. And, and then um, a researcher at, uh, um, in Washington did a, with the, with the genetics of Washington cases and the, genetic, the genetics of the Chinese cases was able to compare them and say, these are too close together. These are the same family. This is the same virus. We've had this since it started in China. This has been here since the beginning of 2020, not the, not the middle of February. And, uh, and that, just, that, that sort of changed everything. That made everybody think, oh man, it's, there's, there are cases here that are either mildly symptomatic or uh, asymptomatic transmission or more likely mildly symptomatic transmission, right? Not, you don't feel it, but when you start to feel a little bit sick, but you still go out. And that means that a lot of people could have it. And nobody knows if a lot means 60% of the population or 20% of the population. But if you take any of those high double digit percentages and then say, and 20% of the people who have it need to go to the intensive care unit and 1% of the people who have it die potentially. And again, mm -hmm. these numbers are all still in play to some right. extent. If you say 50% of the people get infected with it and 1% of the people who get it die, then you're in the millions. Then, then all of a sudden it becomes terrifying. And so, you know, for example, the, the um, kind of the modeling, the disease modeling that started to come out of uh, groups at Stanford and places like um, University College London mm -hmm. or Imperial College, excuse Imperial me. Imperial College London, right. Um, the Imperial College um, and, uh, uh, and a, 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 an independent group in Washington started doing these model, models and saying, you know, there, there aren't, we don't even have half the number of ICU beds. We don't have, like then it became, um, that, that, that panic started to emerge. The, the justified, reasonable panic started. Right, right. So we've talked and about the no tests. And the, and the tests right. still and were there's no tests. Test. So there's right. no way to know. Um, right. You just couldn't tell. Well, can we put a date on when the first American-made 
test is produced? Oh, I don't know. Okay. Um, I want to, I got to start building a timeline. I was thinking about this today. I already need, cause I'm losing dates and I'm losing sort of cause and effect. I feel like I need to put up a big timeline in my office here so I can sort of follow it. But you, okay. Idea. So you, you, you took us back to January and, and then we're now we're talking a little bit about the possibility for near term, potentially therapeutics. Let's talk vaccines. Let's, let's go to the other, the other side of this. What are you learning about um, possibility for vaccines? What the timeline we should expect? Who's in the mix on this? Um, presuming we're not going to stumble the way we did with the tests, but of course it's a very different kind of story. The test to, to, determine whether or not somebody has it versus going through our FDA process to get a vaccine produced are quite different. One thing that's um, kind of cool from the science end here is that um, because of SARS and MERS, coronaviruses, immunologically, coronaviruses, respiratory, these sort of respiratory viruses specifically, these kind of viruses are, are like there were already SARS vaccines in development and then SARS sort of petered out, ended and, it, and development didn't continue. But like the serological tests for SARS seem to also pick up SARS-CoV-2. And the, all the kind of vaccinology that people learned for SARS and for MERS to some extent, I, I think also um, may still obtain. So there's one uh, vaccine that has begun testing in humans um, in the West, but uh, in China, there are several vaccines in, in testing. I don't think, I can't tell if any of them have gotten to humans yet. Part of the problem here is that um, data and papers coming out of China are slow and they it's not easy to get that information. So people were waiting for like the serological assay recipe from China and then have to get it translated. Like So I've seen lists of what's in development there, but the papers haven't been published or they don't get published here. They aren't published in English. Um, but there are some, there's some vaccine candidates in China as well. Um, the other tricky bit about that is that there is no good animal model for COVID-19 for SARS-CoV-2. Um, people are working on that. There, as I understand it, there now is a mouse model that expresses the human on its cells, the human receptor that the virus attaches onto. It's a receptor called ACE2 um, outside of the cell that the virus, the docking bay for the virus that it attaches into with those spike proteins that it gets into. Um, the mouse version of that receptor wasn't as good for testing drugs against. Now there's a human one. People have to acquire those mice. Um, you have to grow those up. And then the question is whether in an emergency you even do any animal testing. Maybe you just go, no, we're going right to human phase one safety. Um, that might happen too. Uh, you really want these things to happen safely because um, there have been bad experiences uh, in dealing with um, outbreaks in North America, certainly where the the outbreak wasn't as bad as people thought. It doesn't look like we're going to get lucky like that this time. But the outbreak wasn't as bad as people thought, but then the vaccine gave people QN bar disease, for example, vaccine. Um, also, the way people die from, or get very sick from, and die from um, COVID-19 has, a, little, has, a, has a, a, a thing that gives vaccinologists pause as well, because one of the things that can happen is after recovery, the, the immune system gets hyperactive. You get what's called a cytokine storm. Right, um, right. And there's this huge, uh, this huge immune response that then you have to try to tamp down. It's like an autoimmune disorder. And what you don't want is for a, a um, for that to happen, like if you get a vaccine and then you get exposed to the virus, for the virus to induce that cytokine storm again. 
but not again, but for the, for the first time. You have to make sure that that doesn't happen too. So the vaccine doesn't do that, vaccine, but you wanna make sure the vaccine doesn't induce that. You wanna make sure that the, right. Um, I'm being very cautious here also because there, there, there's, a, you know, the politics of vaccination and anti-vaccination are, are so disconcerting in this country. Obviously you want a vaccine, you want it to work. That's what's going on. So you want to test that. That's what right. you got to find the right targets. There are a bunch of different possible targets that you can make the antigens for, and then you have to test those and then see if it actually confers immunity. So not only are the stakes high, but as you were just saying, they're higher than ever right now because of the anti-vaccination movement that would be looking for a reason to say that, you know, this is one more example that big vax is making us all sick rather than keeping us healthy. I want to get to a couple of questions here, actually, that have come in. Um, one from Tim, um, who was asking, if it didn't come up yet, and it didn't, what is your take, Adam, on the 15-minute blood tests that are uh, being promised to be rolled out in the UK in the next in the next few days? Have you seen that? I did see that. Um, I think that's tremendously good news. Uh, I, I just, I, um, I wasn't clear to me how that, how the data was going to be captured for you know surveillance and for the stuff that I was just talking about, mm -hmm. um, uh, you the, the thing about blood tests is that they only work after like about two two weeks. They sort of peak two weeks from the onset of symptoms. So they really are like a way to tell to learn about the past to build a a, a kind of epidemiological case. Right. They're not helpful for if you start to cough and have a fever. That's that day. They're not going to be that helpful. Um, but it's still, but you still really want to have them. So any any rollout is good. And and as soon as they're kind of commercial scale blood tests, that's what you really want. There, there was a there's there are a couple of these now that have been where the assays like people can build them for their own labs. But having commercial ones that you could just get access to, make millions of them and send them out, that would be great. to this discussion we were having about the tests, this from Amy Slayton. She's saying if the FDA um, slow walked previous research and development on tests, uh, what would keep the vaccination R&D from being similarly delayed? Um, so in other words, do we need, as she's saying, do we need to identify and expose the political actors who drop the ball on the tests to keep them from being the same people involved as we work towards a vaccine. Now, I'm not sure if those are the same actors mm -hmm. at all, and it sounds like there's still a lot of reporting to be done here, but it does raise, I think, a really important question about this kind of a disaster, what I call a slow disaster, because it's it playing out over such a long period of time that you may literally have certainly the same agencies, but even potentially the same officials who are tasked with different parts of the mitigation or the response. And if they blew it on the mitigation, why should we keep them involved? I mean, shouldn't we yeah. be exposing them and calling for accountability? I think a lot of things about this at once. I think, first of all, it's not clear what happened. So I don't, so I, I don't want to jump right in and say right. the FDA blew it or someone at the FDA or someone at CDC blew it or somebody, wow. somebody gave an order. I want to know what that was. So I, my, my reporting hypothesis would be that, but that doesn't mean it's true. I don't have any evidence of that. My, my, my reporting hypothesis, candidly, my reporting hypothesis is that there is someone, there is somebody who gave an instruction that has, that went south. No, don't buy the WHO test because for political reasons, not scientific ones. 
Maybe, maybe, but I don't know if that's true or not at all, right? That's super speculative. Like it's a question I keep asking people. That's what sure. I mean by that. I keep asking people that question. Um, if, but part of that hypothesis, part of the, the like, the, the reason you want to know that is you want to know if it was politically motivated. And if it was, because it was politically motivated, then you do worry about this, the other thing. Right. But also the political motivation, if the political motivation was to keep numbers down, huge if, it's a really big if, right? But that's the sort of the thing we're, we're circling around is this idea that maybe the, you know, that there was a political reason to keep the numbers of people who are actually infected down because that looked bad. But that, that political motivation doesn't exist for the vaccine. Right. right. The vaccine, the political motivation there is to get everybody vaccine as quickly as possible so that we can, you know, get on with our lives again and not not be scared. <laughs> right. um, so so the motives are different. But but that's all that's like that's one potential thread. If the but the other if the if the thread if the the Occam's razor thread of like maybe people just really messed up up and down the chain here. Maybe this was just mistakes because right. of a of a politically denuded agencies and all yeah, the other reasons people make speak. mistakes. Yeah, if it's just that, then like, yeah, maybe, you know, maybe the vaccine approval process could, could run into problems as well. Now, there are, it's outside labs, outside researchers working on vaccines. It's not that self-contained, you know, it's not a unit at the CDC. That's, I mean, there may be research at the CDC working on it as well, but there are, these, there are all these other places that are working on it too. Um, you know, a half dozen, a half dozen, nearly a dozen in China, probably the same number um, in, the, in the United States. So that, that you know, that distributed aspect of it probably um, mitigate militates against the idea that one you know some messed up department of some messed up agency is going to screw this all up maybe but like all that again i just really i really want to be in a rush to say like yeah i'm speculating on all those things that reporting is all ongoing well let's let's talk a little bit about the technological side of it you talked about the outside labs and you know there's this um I guess it's famous. It's famous to me, at least the Elon Musk tweet of last week, if, if they need ventilators, we'll make ventilators, which um, to me, you know, opens the way into the complexity of this moment in American manufacturing and American technology. I mean, we're, we're sort of back to something we, we had lost for a long time, which was the, the cult of the inventor. You know, I mean, that's, we had that in America a hundred years ago and we kind of lost it for a while. And now we're back to a time where there are inventors and industrialists who are household names in America. And when they tweet, people get very excited. And of course there was a lot of reaction to that tweet. And some people said, you know, typical God complex. And other people said, no, the guy's done some pretty amazing things. What, why not? We're, you're out there in, uh, in tech bro, central where innovation is found around around every corner yeah what was your reaction to that tweet and what should we be looking for we have this disruptive technology is what america is supposed to be known for can we hack the can we hack covid19 can we get to it that way my you know my sense of all of that especially you know i was nowhere near uh, on the front lines of of covering theranos for example the way john Kerry, Kerry was of course um, but we did, you know, we covered it as well. And I was, I was running our science desk when all that was going on. And I think one of the, one of the lessons of all that was that some of the, um, some of the incentives and, and practices of kind of venture capital and, and, the, and the innovative disruption spirit don't always align with um, the biosciences. Mm. 
because of the slow and plotting testing. I and mean, one of the, one of the ways that I put this, I, I think, in the story is that 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 in another story is that that what what that world wants to do is um, move very quickly and that come up with a thing and then solve whatever problems arise after you've come up with it. And science really wants you to come up with a thing by solving the problems um, as you as you move through it. Um, and because there's people's lives at stake on the other end, um, very different than, a, than, you know, the development, which could just be just as innovative of like an app on a phone or even the phone itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and I think um, one of the amazing things that uh, Elon Musk has done with SpaceX, but certainly with Tesla is like build a whole new, uh, build factories that make a thing. It's not just a, a square on your a light, a light up square on your phone. It's an actual. These are actual objects that drive around outside my window. Um, but the but the machinery to build those objects is actually very different than the machinery to build the other objects. And, right. and what Musk said in one of the tweets is like, we do sophisticated HVAC for the Teslas, and we do the ventilation system for the life support system on the on in the SpaceX capsule. It's got to be the same thing, right? And the answer, you know, from the people who build ventilators and ECMO machines for hospitals. Like, no, it's not the same thing at all. <laughs> Big ventilator got their nose out of joint when he said that. <laughs> Big ventilator. Yeah, that's right. Um, it, now, uh, are some of the parts in common? Mm. Maybe. Uh, and, but does that mean that you want Tesla to find a way to make a, a super sleek version of that? Or should they just give the parts to the company right. that needs them to make ventilators? That's a question, right? And then um, I think since all that has happened, um, a lot of the car companies have tried to, because we, we sort of equate the car companies in this country with being the big sort of manufacturing companies. And, and like Ford has said, we're going to work with a ventilator company. We've got some things like we've got these fans from F-150s that go in the seats. We can give them to the, mm-hmm. a ventilator company. We can help with that. But like retooling an assembly line is a big deal. Um, and I think just broadly, there is this, um, there is a sensibility uh, in kind of engineer land that like um, everybody who's done this before us just doesn't really understand what they're doing. Um, it feels a little bit like a, I don't, this is a this is a kind of a trope in the history of science. I know you know about like that. Every so often, all of a sudden, the physicists will come in into a field. You know, the physicists will be like, "Okay, everybody, don't panic." <laughs> right. You know, you weren't able, you haven't been able to figure out what genetic material is yet. Yeah. The physicists are here. We got this one. Yeah. And uh, and you know, every so often they're right, but a lot of times they're not because it's not it's not what they're what they know about. And it has a little bit of that feeling to me sometimes as well of like. You know, the engineers saying, obviously, we're just going to we're just going to hack PPEs. You go, no, 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 you, you can't do that. You can't 3D printing material. Does, it holds, you know, pathogens in a different way than the silicon that the, the 3M used or whatever. Like the answers yeah. are different. And then maybe sometimes something evolves out of that where everybody goes, oh, we didn't know that. But maybe we can make a thing um, that will be helpful. And I, I'm, I, so I have hope that there that there's still usefulness for this. The tremendous desire to help the thing that I have been encouraged by. In, by the um, the tech community, the engineering community, is they really they're like, well, then let us help. Let us let us do something. We know how to build stuff. We know how to make stuff. Right. Let us do something. If if you don't have any tests, can we make tests? If you don't have any ventilators, can we make ventilators? Can we tell you to use the ventilators better? And um, you know, I hope that that's the kind of level that that can be useful and not just like, um, oh, we'll just we'll just why can't you guys just build ventilators? And, and also one thing that has started to happen is these very wealthy companies are, are finding ways to say like, oh, you guys need N95 masks. Mm-hmm. You got access to 10 million of those here. Right. Yeah, I think that's, that's, and I think that's, there's a couple things we're learning here. One, you mentioned about the assembly line. Um, you know, assembly lines are pretty different today than they were in World War II when you uh, stopped making, you know, Buicks and you started making tanks. 
um, it's much more automated, obviously. So, you know, there's that question to consider. But the other thing, I was talking with a FEMA official the other day, and he said 80% of the story here is making the protection equipment. And, you know, I don't know much about the manufacturing side of that, but I've got a guess that's a lot more low tech than making uh, a ventilator or an electric car. So do any of these tech firms want to be known as the firm that suddenly goes from making the electric car to making the, the face mask? I mean, it just seems like a different category of innovation to me. And I'll tell you something, uh, you say that, but the, um, the fabric, the textile used in PPEs and in, in N95 masks is a non-woven melt-blown synthetic textile that has uh, gone from $6,000 a ton to $60,000 a ton. You're kidding. Um, because it takes special machines to like extrude this stuff in the right shape and then make the layers. So while everybody has been, I say everybody, while a lot of people have been thinking like in a very, um, you know, blitz-like spirit, why don't we sew our own surgical masks? Here's the multiple layers. The answer is like, well, we're not really sure those are going to work as surgical masks. And also the issue of whether masks work at all is a hugely complicated issue now, it turns out, because whether people should be wearing them on the streets and whether those countries that have done well against the disease yeah. or culture, or have cultures that support mask wearing outside and how all that works, that's a whole other you know, issue. I'm just realizing when I asked when you were having this conversation how little I know about, uh, about these materials that are in the mask. We're going to need like a either. whole <laughs> lot of reporting just about the, the mask. The low tech becomes the high tech. Um, let me add, let me get to a, a question here that um, was asked by Eileen Young. Do you think Silicon Valley companies relinquishing their N95 masks now, when they're obviously needed, will result in a compounding shortage during the California fire season? So we're getting to this problem of cascading disasters, and you know everybody's rushing into the disaster zone to respond in one way, but fire season's upon us. Hurricane season is right around the corner. What do you think? It's a great question, I think. What do you, what do you think about that? Um, I think that is, as you say, a great question. Uh, I'm a Californian by, by birth and upbringing. And, you know, part of that California thing is the is wildfire, earthquake season, wildfire season, and, and landslide season. Um, and the, you know, the fear of the double disaster, of the compounded disaster is, is always the one that looms here. Um, you know, assuming that the, let's say that the peak is May, which is a, a good guess, but not necessarily a true guess. But the peak is May, like, are, are we, are we going to be in a place where there's, you know, hospitals still with tons of people on ventilators in pop-up tents in their parking lots at the same time as there's potentially a mass casualty fire, which there hasn't really been, there's been like, we've brushed up against, pardon the use of that stupid pun, brushed up against a mass casualty fire, but like there's no burn wards either. In the same way there's no ventilators, it turns out, relatively speaking. What happens then? Nobody, nobody knows that. Or everybody knows, and we don't want to tell ourselves what might happen. So anyway, I'm, that was a long way of saying I don't know, but it's a scary possibility. Well, let me tie back into some of your earlier reporting and things we've talked about, about this sort of concept of investigating disasters or how we learn from previous disasters. And, um, you know, I was, yeah, I was speaking with a, a guy at FEMA uh, about this and, and uh, was asking him, you know, what about the tabletops? I mean, ha didn't HHS do tabletops of a global pandemic? Aren't pe haven't people done these within FEMA? 
Um, and his answer was really interesting. It's like, well, yeah, I mean, you know, sometimes people do these, but they're just considered too far out to spend much time on is basically what he said. Um, and yet right now, as you just said, I mean, even just reaching surge capacity for a couple of months in a hospital, that doesn't seem too far out to compound that with a, uh, a hurricane in Florida or Texas or wildfire in California or Nevada. doesn't seem far out to me at all. So when you looked into this sort of issue of, of how these agencies learn from disaster and thought a little bit about what kind of apparatus we need to do these kinds of investigations, what did you find out? But isn't the, you, you, you're, you're well ahead of me on thinking about this kind of stuff, but I, of, of, of what's happened here is that so much of that knowledge is uh, actually resonant in people's heads, not in practices. And um, there was just a, a story today um, in Politico about uh, how the, there were a bunch of pandemic reports that one agency that's moved around through, through Homeland Security um, produced. And then because that, that the agency essentially fell apart for some bureaucratic reasons, it's personnel reasons, they lost the reports. Like they, they had to find the zip drive where they kept the reports on. Um, you know, when, when, uh, when Ron Klain um, keeps, uh, keeps turning up um, as, a, as an expert. And you think, well, that's, he's around because he, he, didn't, he, he wasn't an expert in handling uh, pandemics or disasters of really any kind when he, when he became the head of the Ebola response here. He was, he was uh, um, Joe Biden's chief of staff, you know, but they needed somebody who could like organize stuff. And now yeah. he, he's the one who knows how to do that. Or Larry Brilliant, who, who yeah. Stephen Levy interviewed. They us. needed the guy who knew the men and women who could get things done. I think that and, was... And who, and who would ask the question? Important you know, skill set, right? Who would say early on, like, "Oh, geez, you don't have any. We don't have enough ICU capacity. Has anybody checked how many ventilators are in the national stockpile? We're going to need those too." Like, just who can say that stuff as somebody who can say it to him or her, um, and uh, and that's probably not that's not that's not an ISO nine thousand practice, is it? Like, you don't have the, you're, they're supposed to be manuals, aren't there? But they're yeah, yeah. I guess there weren't that, and then when the people weren't there, so like even at the beginning. This is again not my reporting. It's other reporting, but like the during the transition from the Obama administration to the Trump administration, a bunch of people who were high up in the Trump administration at the time got a briefing on how to deal with the pandemic out of China. You know, like also by the way, we're a little bit concerned. It's happened before. We think there's going to be a respiratory virus pandemic out of China at some point. If there is, here's what you need to do. And all the people who got that briefing are gone. They're just they're not in the administration anymore because there's been such high turnover. Um, so who was left to know what that was? So when you looked at this in December, when, when, when ProMed, when the open source ProMed said, we're seeing disturbing unknown pneumonias in Wuhan. And then when China said, we've got a problem at the end of December. And then in January, when you know, the world public health agencies started to get involved, um, you know, maybe nobody was there who could say, this is exactly what they told us to worry about. And part of that is, I mean, it's, I keep finding these echoes of the Cold War and the sort of command and control structures, which are supposed to work um, in disasters where people are killed. And the idea is that it's much more about the function than it is about the individual. I mean, that's, you know, that's kind of the military idea. We should be able to have a set of tasks that fit in this box. And when three or four or five people die, um, the next person comes along and can do it. 
But of course, that doesn't comport with the reality in which disasters are processed and they're learning and they're about communication and all these other sort of soft skill, messy, historical things that don't, um, that actually really matter in moments like what you're just describing. Unarguably happened in America in January in many different agencies. And people are looking around, they're saying, well, who was here last time we did a pandemic? May have been no one. We've, when I was in, this is speaking slightly out of school, but, but even in the room at Wired, in the room where it was man, managers at Wired, that I was also in the room because I was covering the story, where we were all talking about, well, how are we going to handle this in the office? When do we go? Is, how do we know if it's time to work from home? What, what resources? We, no, none of us knew how to do that. Right. We had to invent that stuff there. And, and you know, Condé Nast, which owns Wired, was trying to help too, but they were, HR was inventing those practices there too. And I will say, like, I have, I've been at Wired for more than 15 years and periodically I go rant when I have too much free time, I go in people's office and rant and say like, do we have a plan for an earthquake? Are there kits here? Yeah. You know, when the fire is started, it's like, are there N95 masks for us to go outside and cover? There weren't, we had to go buy some, you know, and, and, and the same thing of, of kind of looking at each other in a room and, and on in this format now on Zoom and saying, who is, when do, when, who says, when does someone say, and who is the someone who says it's time to work from home? Mm-hmm. What are even our standards here? Like, how do we know? What's the marker? You know, if you, those practices, I think that's what they, that's what they think they mean when they talk about black swans. Um, but I actually don't think that's, this one is one that's even outside that. This is a dragon king, right? This is outside the standard. Right. Right. occurrence but, but even what you're just talking about i've seen because i follow emergency management you know twitter pretty closely and this kind of conversations about well what happens when somebody gets sick in the eoc i mean how many should we be fully staffed at this moment shouldn't we not be fully staffed in this moment everything we know means tells us we should but everything we're learning tells us we shouldn't and can they learn on the fly and make new procedures and policies in the moment i mean that is, I, i'm fascinated and humbled by what they're trying to figure out literally in the moment right now. I saw this amazing paper, and I'll send it to you if you want it, of a, the, the radiology team at a Singapore hospital talking about how they had changed all their practices between SARS and now. Because um, one of the ways that, you, that they diagnosed SARS, and also in China, the way they were diagnosing uh, COVID-19, SARS-CoV-2, mm. um, w- uh, was with CT. You look at the lungs before you know how to test for it. And it had this weird, it's called ground glass. It had a particular texture as the lungs would get damaged. So radiology was very much involved in both SARS and then also in this one. And so the radiology team like changed this whole, um, uh, changed their whole practices. They like separated inpatient from outpatient and they, and they had dividing walls between when patients were coming in and people who were waiting. And they actually had two full teams who were working completely separate from each other. So that if one of them got exposed and, in, and quarantined, the other team could come on board. All this stuff that they just had to figure out then that they still, that they put in place. Fascinating. And then I was reading about just newsrooms, you know, those kind of journalism, you know, social connections, talking about like, well, what are newsroom good practices? Should a newsroom divide into, you know, orange team and purple team right. so that the purple team goes to work for a month and orange team works from home for a month and then they switch so that there can be people in a newsroom yeah. and then they can come back out to not get exposed as often potentially, or they, if they get quarantined, then purple team comes back on that kind of stuff. We just, newsrooms don't have those kind of practices in my newsroom. No newsroom I've ever worked in has had those kind of practices. Well, by July, you, you might. 
I mean, this is also as we as we climb out of the the sheltering and the quarantining. These are also um, practices. I mean, we need to go back and look again. I've been looking at these old Cold War. You know, here I've been railing against these Cold War civil defense planners now for my whole career, and I'm like today, I'm like, oh, I gotta go back and find some of those things because I want to see what they kind of modeling they did, if there was any value to it, to people coming out again and how you restart an economy post-nuclear attack, which I think in many ways, the metaphor is decent here. And similarly, looking at the 1918 pandemic, at what point did people go back outside again and did they sort of go all at once or did they go in a more, what you're describing, sort of systematic, careful way so that we don't get that little mic, that bump again once the curve is bent, it can come back. Right. right. And, and I will say, and this just looping back around to what we started this conversation with, that's why um, understanding the epidemiology here, probably through extensive testing, is going to be so important right. because, because epidemiologists and modelers need those accurate numbers to feed into their models to say, what, how long can we wait before we can right. end this? Yeah. Um, because it's very different if, you know, if, if, um, if people are more if it's more infectious, if people infect more people than we think, then we have to stay inside longer. Yeah. And we can, I say we like, I know how to do this. They can model that, um, but they need that data to be able to yeah. model it accurately. Because if we stop too soon, then the numbers, the curve goes right back up. So I want to draw to a, a close here, but I just wanted to, um, I know that one of your fascinations is FEMA guidelines on stockpiling supplies at home and occasionally I get an email from you like what do you think about this they're telling us <laughs> to keep you know five days worth of stuff and after 9-11 it was you know get a have your go bag and have three days worth of stuff and I think we've you know people have really used that as a punching bag for a long time it's not so easy for people to figure out what they would need if they had to shelter in place and how how they're going to come up with the money to fill the larder for two weeks and now it's happened uh, that thing that we were mocking, we have become. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm waiting for your story in which we have to reevaluate these guidelines. But I, yeah, what do you think? I, we're, gonna, we're out of time, but I just want to get a quick hit on that. I'll me. go real fast on this. Yeah. Two things happened with this that were a different kind of disaster than I ever anticipated. The disaster that I was trying to get to anticipate was you're on your own for two weeks right. or three days it was, and then it became two weeks. No, nothing. Utilities are off, no help, nothing. This disaster, the grocery stores are open. The electricity is still on. The water is still on. The water is still potable. Right. It's not even that it's still on. It's still potable. You can just you can still drink your tap water. Yeah. So like all of that prep was meaningless. But the but the technology prep for being able to keep in touch with stuff turns out to be critical. And the and the like continuity of service for work and for business and for doing that turns out to be much more important. Um, I mean, you can still have Netflix in this disaster. You can, you can watch streaming videos. My family's watching Community at home again. You know, that's, that's not because I expected to be under a tarp in the backyard, and that's not what happened here. So it turns out that, like, um, you know, there are different kinds of disaster kits, I guess. Yeah, I think that's, that's going to be another area for research here. And there was something that really knocked me out when I went to the grocery store last week for the last time, and all the water was gone. And I thought, you know, the emergency management officials have to give themselves a pat on the back. Their messaging has gotten through. It's just that the public doesn't know. We, they reflexively just bought water, even though it's not what we've needed. So mixed, uh, mixed outcome there, I guess, to a certain degree. But um, okay. 
Yeah, so I want to remind everybody that we are going to talk about Italy tomorrow um, with Giacomo Perinello and Paolo Cavalieri. And uh, Adam, we, we only got about half of the things on my list here, so I hope we get a chance to get you back. And thank you so much for the reporting you're doing and for taking the time to talk to us here today on the, on the COVID calls. I'm glad to get to do it. It's fascinating. Thank you. Okay, everybody. We'll talk to you tomorrow, 5 o'clock. Bye.